know, oftentimes people of color, particularly African-Americans, have often said that Christianity is the white man's religion. You know, in many regards, um, I think that is correct. I think it has become part of that. I think the offspring of white Christianity is current American evangelicalism. However, this week's guest breaks that myth down much, 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 much further than just a white man's religion. Ethnic minorities really are key and central to the Christian story. And again, this week's guest really gets into that to help us decolonize our mind from whiteness within Christianity. Because at the end of the day, our Zulu Nation of Islam, 5%er fam, they've got some good things right. And they've got a lot of things that they have to say that are that are on point in regards to race. But I think once we push past the colonization, we're able to actually see Christianity for what it really is. So let's get ready, y'all. This week, let's decolonize our minds even further theologically with my guest, Dr. Vince Bantu. This Profane Faith. Jesus uttered these words 2,000 years ago. How are they going to beat ISIS? I don't think it's going to happen. But, but he has these bizarre ideas about what Christianity stands for and what it means. Atomic bombs and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he does, you will no longer be a homosexual, but you will be a heterosexual. And that's what it means to be white. To say that you're standing on your own ground and standing on somebody else's and then mystify the whole process. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. going on out there in podcast land good people this your boy dan white hodge in the place to be oh my goodness week what week is this what what are we doing now that uh what are we in week 50 of the COVID 19 feels like feels like life has stopped and not come back and you know in many regards i mean right i mean we're finding out that uh you know life won't return to any normalcy of what we think food industry now we have we're talking you know, looking at the meat industry and uh you know thousands of workers there are testing positive for COVID-19 uh who knows how much of that has actually gotten into actually the food our food chain um and just that whole mess right um then you've you know you've still got uh you know hard hit uh COVID-19 in in people in communities uh, of color especially African-Americans and um you know uh it's 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 definitely gruesome when you spend too much time thinking about it I think hopefully you're getting some time away from just headlines and media um I know I tried to do that this week 
both today and yesterday, I woke up and I'm just depressed and uh, just just feeling out of it. On top of that, my allergies have been killing me. Um, and so I was thankful that, you know, both yesterday and today, um, we were by both, the, well, the family and I, we went and got out on a walk. And that was really good. Um, put in about 18, 19 miles this week um, of walking. And that was, that's good. That's good for me. Um, especially, you know, a brother ain't big on working out. I ain't one of them working out type cats and stuff, man. So, um, it's been good. Plus walking is great. It's good just for my own body and just my, everything just feels better and it's helped clear the mind. It's good to hang out with the fam. And, uh, so that's been good. Something that I've done just this week to help cure some of the, just some of the mental, you know, just going on that happens over and over and over and over again. And just all the BS that's out there right now. I mean, there's just a ton of crap that is out there that quite frankly is just just to even hear it is depressing right let alone to try to take it in and process it and think about it um so i again i hope where whoever you are wherever you're at whenever you're listening to this that you uh yeah you're getting some uh some rhythm in your life and taking some time away uh social media can drag me in and i've said that plenty of times on this show um i'm trying to do my best to back away from that and not have that be, you know, at the center and have it take up all the oxygen. Because uh, for me, um, it's very easy to get lost in the weeds. And then, you know, then you start thinking this, you start thinking that and you're just like, oh my gosh. And then it's like, oh, whoa, it's just messed up. And it really is. And this is not to say, please don't hear that I'm trying to say, stick your head in the ground and think that everything's going to be all right. No, 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 no. Um, be vigilant. Um, be be wise, be a critical thinker, be someone who understands, you know, some of the nuances. I just think it's it's overwhelming uh, to constantly be connected to that, you know, constantly be looking at um, a screen and not being able just to get outside. And again, for here in Chicago today it was beautiful. Um, our first probably 70 degree weather day tomorrow might even, you know, get up to low 80s. Um, I'll take that. <laughs> for some of you maybe on, you know, out in Florida or out in Cali, maybe you're just like, hey, that's every day. I'm like, yeah, 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 whatever. Um, but, uh, you know, we're thankful out here, you know, in Chicago where, because earlier in the week it was cold, it was rainy, it literally rained. I think it was Tuesday, it rained all day, all, all day, <laughs> from sun up to sundown. It was just raining uh, and gloomy. And so, you know, uh, those, those days, especially with where we're at right now, it is... It can be a lot. And, uh, you know, if you struggle with just any kind of mental illness, any kind of behavioral stuff, man, those things come out. I give it to all the parents right now with, with little kids. I, I don't know how you're doing it. I mean, I don't I remember <laughs> I was telling my wife this this week, you know, because um, just seeing them, you can just see when out on a walk and and you see just uh, parents faces, especially mom's faces, man. They're just like, ooh, jeez, of little kids. Oh, my goodness. Um I remember my my daughter, she was probably, I don't know, um, 13, 14 months old, just barely coming into toddlerdom. And I remember we went on vacation and it was the first time she was like in the pool, like in the pool, pool. And, you know, she couldn't even say the pool. It was poo, poo. 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, and it was like, I remember one time, it was like, you know, we spent like seven hours in the pool. I was like all shriveled up and everything. Uh, it was just like, okay, kiddo, you know, okay, mama, you know, it's time to go in. You know, it's like, we daddy's been out here a long time. And she just couldn't understand. She's just thinking pool all the time. I go, poo, 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 poo. <laughs> she crying and kicking. So I can't even imagine trying to tell somebody of that age, right? You know, like, hey, no, we can't go to the park. No, we can't go do this. It's like, you know, we can't go to this other place. We can't go to this other person's home. Um, you know, I'm I'm thankful for at least right now. And if you are dealing with that, again, I hope you, you're able to break up your day somehow. Um, uh, I really do. Because, like I said, it's 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 some crazy, some crazy stuff out there, man. And um, I don't know what the end is going to look like. I really don't. Um, it seems like, you know, I read one article this week talking about like how AI, uh, this could be. Because, you know, CEOs in, of large companies, especially places like Walmart and Amazon, Target, um, they have long dreamed of having machinery take over um, in, you know, particularly in areas that they don't have to worry about, right? that just cuts a whole bunch of costs, right? Because then you don't have to worry about health insurance, uh, any kind of sexual harassment claims. You can have production pretty much seamlessly. You only need a couple of people to watch the machine. So uh, there was an article, I think it was Forbes or The Economist or one of those that, uh, that was talking about how um, this could be the opportunity, right? That uh, AI could end up, you know, implementing, taking some of these jobs under the name and under the guise of, you know, everybody's safety, public safety. Like, let's let these robots do this work. Um, you know, it's kind of like how the airline snuck in baggage fees, right? <laughs> you know, during the uh, second Gulf War, um, you know, they had been trying to figure out a way how to charge people for their luggage, you know, to make extra money. Um, and they figured it out and, you know, it never went away. And I remember, I remember specific, in fact, I should probably do some research, but I remember like around 2002, 2003, um, you know, when Iraq was invaded again, uh, by the U.S. and you know, people were like, "Well, you know, gas is shortage, and you know, there's a we gotta, you know, we we gotta we gotta charge extra for for this, and so we're, we're you know, we're gonna we're gonna add some fees because it, it you know the weight on the plane." I'm like, "Mofo's." The weight on the plane was there before, right? And they were talking about how as soon as this thing was over, you know, they'll, you know, take away the fees. And some of y'all probably don't even remember flying without fees. That's the sad thing, right? I remember flying, um, cats would take all kind of stuff on the plane, right? Um, I think, I think that was after your fourth or fifth bag, maybe they started charging people. Um, and there wasn't all these carry-on restrictions either, so, um, brave new world, y'all. Brave new world. We're gonna see what happens. Um... At any rate, hope you're well. Really do. I really do mean that. I do miss seeing people. Um, although I was, I've, I haven't been very sociable. I know I've been getting a lot of invites to Zoom and go do this and happy hour that. I'm just kind of like, uh, okay. So yeah, I'm not. I'm yeah. I'm not that thrilled to <laughs> to be doing something like that right now. But we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. Um, this week I'm excited. I hope you get your notepads and pencils out because this brother is going to be going in. I first met Dr. Vince Bantu ooh, about 13 years or so ago. This was probably at a CCDA conference. And he was presenting with uh, Sun Chan Ra, Dr. Sun Chan Ra, and they were talking about, you know, basically decolonizing Christianity. This was one of the first times I really heard articulated in this type of way how Christianity was an ethnic minority, a person of color's religion, and how when the, the church was centered in Rome, um, you know, and, and centralized and, and really colonized that way that, you know, a lot of these ethnic minorities lost their, their connection. But those, you know, those 
sects of Christianity still exist, just in much lesser numbers. And so uh, I wanted to get him on. He just wrote a new book, and he's going to talk about that. And um, he's uh, one of the Oheen of the Meacham School of Haymont. Uh, he is uh, the professor over there at the School of Haymont. And I'm maybe saying it wrong. Hey, Manot. I'm, I'm probably saying it wrong, and I apologize in advance. But it's a, this is a seminary, particularly for people of color, um, you know, to go and get trained out, outside of, again, a colonized uh, perspective. Because at the end of the day, you know, I have to always say, you know, we've been asking for a long ass time for seminaries, white seminaries to change. And I don't really believe they are. I don't really believe they're interested in any of that because that's maybe when it's falling apart. Right. Like I like I heard Fuller was getting, you know, more ethnic minorities over there and stuff. And I'm like, right. When when it's you know, it's like the economy's crashing and everything like that. It's like that's when they hand it over to, you know, the people of color and stuff, man. So. Yeah, I don't know, man. I, I think we have to have our own stuff. And it's difficult to get your own stuff, right? Because then you have to got to find money. Money is, again, the religion that we pay homage to. So, um, you know, those are those are big things. But I'm, I'm excited that, that that Vince has got some, some stuff, particularly for us, by us. Um, and he's an assistant professor of church and history and black uh, church studies at Fuller. So Fuller did hire that brother. And so hopefully they'll keep that brother long and tenure him and all that good stuff. He holds an M.A and PhD in Semitic and Egyptian languages from the Catholic University of America. He has an MDiv from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. They're a Center for Urban Ministry Education and a THM from Princeton Theological Seminary, okay? He also has a BA in theology from Wheaton. So this brother's got some theology <laughs> under his belt, okay? Um, his primary interests, you know, have included theological contextualization, racial reconciliation, early Christianity in Africa and Asia and theological uh, education in under-resourced communities. And that's, again, that's how I came to know him. He was a, a doctoral student. And um, I was like, man, this brother, he's, this is good. And then once I started digging and pulling out that thread, that's when, for me at least, um, looking at a version of Christianity that was decolonized began. Um, and, really, and I was really able to have some resources to stand on and really begin to kind of dig into... Um, what does the Bible really say? You know, we've been, you know, our colonizers have told us that it was, it's this way. Um, and it's not. And by the way, I've been, I watched the series on Netflix or, uh, or unorthodox. Oh my gosh. That I need to find somebody on here to, to have a conversation about that. Cause it was about this young woman who leaves, uh, an ultra Orthodox Jewish community. Uh, and she goes to Berlin and it's like this whole journey of, you know, it's like all the things that people tell you not to do. Um, and then you do them and that the world doesn't blow up, you know, like you were, you know, like you were told and stuff. And so I think it's important to have people like uh, Dr. Bantu around to talk about these things and to actually have some research. Uh, so he's currently developing a book project. Uh, actually, this is uh, he already has that. I think that. Uh, this is part of the bio that, uh, yeah, he's currently developing. Now, he has. This is the book. And this is the book he's going to be talking about here. Um, and, uh, you know, because, again, people ask all the time, where are the resources? Who are the people putting stuff out there? This is one of them. So get ready, right? So, um, yes, at any rate, Dr. Batu and his wife, Diana, with their two daughters, they enjoy traveling, parks, games, and are huge movie fans. But most importantly, I love that uh, this brother right here continues to push forward amidst all the uh, the craziness that uh, Christianity has become and uh, and it really helps and help enrich folks 
um, in their mindset and all that good stuff. So without any further ado, take care of yourselves. Be safe as much as you can. Frontline workers, I know y'all are out there. Much blessings and thank you to you. Maybe you listen to this on the job right now. Blessings to you. Enjoy this conversation that I have with my man Vince. Well, all right, folks, welcome back to Profane Faith. It's your boy, Dan White Hodge, and I'm here with a good friend of mine. I have known Dr. Vince L. Bantu for, man, that feels like a decade now, man. I think you and Brother Ra were teaching the CCDA thing, correct? Wasn't that about like 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago? Oh, yeah. That's what I, mean, I think might even be more. Yeah, yeah like, it, it might have been. It was about that, yes. yeah. Yeah, I think it yep. might have been. I think it might have been. you. Yeah, because you were... Yeah, I think you were just finishing up the PhD. And um, yeah, I remember seeing it. And I was like, man, this brother right here. I remember recording what you had to say. And I was like, gosh, dogs, this brother's throwing down. So um, we got your book, uh, A Multitude of Peoples of All Peoples, Engaging Ancient Christianity's Global Identity. But before we get into to that, um, I'd love to just folks get to know you a little bit, man. Where, where, where are you from, man? What, what's been going on from birth to now? Oh yeah, man. Well, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, back in or turn of two thousands, we had the we had hip hop become centered over here in the Midwest in the South. So like Nelly like <laughs> said, I'm I'm from the Lou and I'm proud. I'm about, you know? uh, yes. So yeah, you know, uh, uh, yeah, man. I'm from St. Louis, born and raised, and yeah, man. I uh, man, I I came to faith at an early age, and you know, felt called all the ministry and the Lord just opened up that opportunity, man, and uh, went to Wheaton College and did a theology degree and, you know, wanted some more. So I went to seminary and got an MDiv at Gordon-Conwell in Boston. And and I just, I wasn't done. I needed some more. And that's when the Lord showed me he wanted me to go into scholarship and, you know, and especially, you know, to do do theological education for our community. So, you know, I, I ended up and I got this passion for early African Christianity, man, I did a class on it. So I ended up going and did a little THM at Princeton and then uh, ended up doing the bulk of my graduate work, you know, at Catholic University of America, uh, MA, PhD, man, focusing on Coptic and Syriac literature. And uh, yeah, man. So then uh, can't, you know, then been, you know, after graduating, doing that hustle thing, man, adjuncting, visiting, you know, all that, you know, but, you know, praise God that, you know, now I'm doing something full time. And so I actually wear two hats uh, currently. I'm, uh, you know, the I'm assistant professor of church history and black church studies at uh, at Fuller Seminary in Houston, Texas, uh, wow. where where I'm based. But also I, I have also, you know, coming up on two years now, have actually started a, a black owned, uh, you know, seminary uh, called the Meacham School of Hymenote. And uh, and that's a that's a, a you know, completely black run, black taught, uh, Afrocentric, theological, biblical uh, school of theology or hymenote. Uh, and um, and yeah, we, uh, you know, we offer classes for uh, students and, and uh, leaders in the black church and black community at an affordable and relevant cost. And so. Uh, so, yeah, with, you know, those are kind of my my two main hats that I'm I'm wearing right now. Wow. I mean, this is so well, break that down a little bit, man, because I'm on this podcast. You know, I always try to present resources and, and folks from materials. That's probably the number one question I get uh, when people reach out. It's like, hey, man, what you know, what do you got for this? What do you got for this? And in your particular subject area, as y'all will see, those of you listening here in a second, um, is especially important because of so much of this kind of revisionist, if you will, uh, both, you know, American, U.S. history and now, of course, church Christian history and stuff, man. So what, tell, share a little bit more about the, this school that you got going on, man. How did it start? Like, 
what's who's involved and man how are you man how how's it working what's what's happening with that yeah man like well you know i like i like i mentioned man i i um you know i grew up in the west side of st Lewis. And then I, you know, I went to Wheaton College and that was kind of my first foray into like white, uh, upper middle class evangelicalism. And I mean, I appreciate a lot of the experience I had there, but I also, man, was really kind of attuned to, cause I, man, I had a hunger for the gospel. I had a hunger for theological education yeah. growing up, you know, in, in my, in, in, the, in St. Louis and growing up in my little, you know, small kind of blue collar church and people love the Lord, man. But like, I, I, I peeped how when I was like studying theology and stuff at that level, how I was like, man, this thing is really, uh, is really going. I mean, there's like, there's a whole theological education world that people from where I'm from are just not even exposed to like at all. And it's just not even available to certain, to so many marginal communities. And, and so I just had a passion for that, man. And so I, I ended up, you know, when I was in seminary, uh, you know, I really, I was at uh, Gordon Conwell. They had an urban campus, which was real cool in the inner city in Boston. And, and, and I was loving it too. Uh, and that's when, and then, so I was like thinking, man, that's what I really feel called to is like creating spaces for theological education and reflection. But that's again, accessible uh, to the to, yes. to your storefront pastor, to your, you know, to your, to your, uh, you know, bivocational minister in that's, that's laboring for the gospel in the hood, uh, you know, and, and, and would love to supplement their call with some theological education, but in a way that's affordable and relevant and all that. And so uh, that's really what launched me into going into scholarship in the first place. And so really, man, when, when I launched the Meacham School of Hymenode a couple of years ago, that was really the goal of it because as I was, man, as I was really continuing on uh, in my education and, and, you know, again, this is not meant to be, uh, you know, like throwing shade at anybody, um, but I, I began, you know, I, I just myself personally, with all respect to anybody else, um, me myself personally i come from a more uh kind of a i'll say you know historic christian faith or a traditional black church perspective in terms of theological uh perspective and i started to peep man as i went through the um you know kind of the graduate school process and kind of emerging as a scholar how the dominant strand of, of black theology in the, in the academy uh at least for me does uh, in some ways in some significant ways really kind of departs from the traditional faith of the black church uh that i that i really represent and come from so i i wanted to really have some and, and even a lot of the existing black seminaries that are out there kind of reflect more so that perspective and i think that's great and again it ain't no shade we need to work together we need to come together uh you know to try to deal with these <laughs> to deal with this white supremacy thing because that, that that thing is a beast man so we oh, <laughs> we gotta yes. we gotta so we gotta you know I, so I rock with all my my homies and all my liberations women as homies like all day uh but at the same time like i said i, I just really felt burdened that we needed something that was uh both rooted in the again the historic traditional faith of seeing the bible as the word of god and jesus is the only way but it's something that is unashamedly and unapologetically rooted in black liberation and black flourishing mm. uh, and ain't apologizing to white mm. folks about nothing and so yes. you know that that's really where the uh you know that's really where the um the the, the idea and the impetus uh for the meacham school came from something that's rooted again in the bible is the word of god uh and also in you know again unapologetically uh rooted in afrocentricity and and black flourishing so yeah man that's really the so we you know man what we do is we offer classes uh you know, in, in cohorts in different cities. We got the first one in St. Louis. We're 
currently starting up the next one in New York, uh, New North Jersey area. And uh, but but we man, we offer classes fully online and we have seminary partnerships with accredited seminaries to where pastors and ministers can get their full MDiv or their full MA, uh, you know, but only at about 25 percent of the usual cost. So what it costs, you know, at most seminaries and with all, you know, black professors. So we got man, we got people like Dr. Dennis Edwards, Dr. Cleotha Robertson, man, uh, Dr. Vince Baco, Dr. Kaniquia Day, uh, Dr. Jacqueline Dyer. Man, we got all again, African-American, uh, you know, PhDs in their respective fields offering classes. Uh, in these cohort intensive hybrid models, uh, you know, in St. Louis or in New York, but also uh, PE student, we got students doing it fully online, you know, through, uh, we got synchronous distance learning and um, yeah, man, so people can get, and they, they can just get certificates, just take classes, audit, uh, but they, again, they can also get their full, you know, accredited MDL. We got partnership with Western Seminary in Michigan and Sioux Falls Seminary in South Dakota uh, to where, you know, our classes we offer uh, through this contextual available format can, you know, does actually lead to MDIV, so, uh, or MA. So yeah, man, that's, that's how we doing it, man. Ooh, see, this is fire, bro. This is fire. See, I had no idea. This is why I love talking with cats like you, man, and, and getting you on the show like this. This, man, because I think, you know, my listenership, you know, is always looking for specifically this. Like you said, you know, it's like, yeah, we're going to look at Jesus. Yeah, we're going to look at the gospel. But again, unashamedly, <laughs> look at you know, We don't got to apologize for nothing about, you know, keeping this in in regards to blackness and Afrocentric thought, man. So I will do everything in my power to promote what y'all got going on there, man. And, you know, and of course, those of you listening, as always, whitehodgepodcast.com. You can go to the show notes. Uh, and click on the link. I'll have all those links there um, for you, man. That's, this is amazing. I'm just, just by that alone, Doc, that is, dude, that's revolutionary. Because my next question was going to be like, you know, what what are you doing for both survival during this era that we find ourselves in and also just to, as resistance in this era that we find ourselves in? And like you said, this white supremacy, man, all over the place. I just got to, well, I won't put the publisher on blast, but I just, I, you know, I, you know, as educators, we get all kind of magazines about, you know, or, or, or um, you know, uh, the, it's a publisher that sent, you know, sent out all the books that are coming out and whatnot. And, and uh, it was a theology section, you know, so it was all like the commentaries and everything and all the books. It was probably about, I don't know, 80 new books coming out on the New Testament, Old Testament and all but about two of them uh, were written by white men. And I'm trying to ask myself, I'm like, wait a minute. It's the year 2020. We don't have people graduating with PhDs and doing research and scholarship in the New Testament and Old Testament and languages, church history. Why are we still getting white men talking about this stuff, man? So what are you doing? I mean, so again, twofold. I hope that makes sense. Twofold. What are you doing to resist and what are you doing to survive in the era that we find ourselves in? Man, I think that's a great question, man. And and honestly, um, you know, I would say uh, I, I would say, man, like, I mean, even just even starting out, man, even just the basic question of like, who am I and what am I doing? You know, I think that in and of itself uh, is an answer to that, because like I said, man, I wear I wear two hats. You know, I'm a I'm a you know, I'm a assistant professor at Fuller Seminary. Uh, you know, a PWI uh, that's trying to grow in these areas. And so I, you know, I, I really felt like they were serious, man. I really felt like they they really want to grow and that they really uh, want to make some moves. And so, so, you know, I stepped into that and I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be there, man. And I'm, uh, you know, we're doing some things, we're going through a lot of different curricular and 
institutional change where we're really trying to lean in, uh, you know, to really centering the margins, uh, you know, and really decentering, you know, the white male perspective and all that kind of stuff. And, and even with them, like hiring me and putting me in church history, that's even particularly why they wanted me to be uh, not only in black church studies, but in church history to not, you know, ghettoize or kind of, you know, put us in the, well, you, you blacks, you speak about black stuff, but it's like, no, we actually going to have, you know, uh, you speak into patristics and teach some of these core classes, mm-hmm. but do it from a global which is like the, some of the stuff in the book, and, and I and I'm down with that, I, and I love that, um, and so I want to, you know, uh, I want to come alongside our, our, you know, our white evangelical brothers and sisters that 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 are serious. I have zero patience, and I have zero time for any of these people that are playing games. Zero. And so when I have, you know, and, and again, like I said, I got love for Fuller and they seem for real about it. But I've been in white, and I, we, I know you have too, we all have been in these white evangelical spaces where they say, we want this, we want that. You come in and it's like, no, nah, you you really didn't want nothing. You accept just to be, <laughs> continue to be in control right. and continue this narrative. And, and I have zero, and I honestly, I would appeal to my people of color who continue to let themselves be violated and let themselves Oof. be abused in those kind of situations and say, that is not for Jesus. That is like, do not think that Jesus wants you to just be abused and be like, you know, like, because really what we're doing is we're enabling. We're like a, we're like a codependent wife that is just making excuses for an abusive alcoholic husband. And Oof. we can't, we cannot, we cannot do that in, at all. You got to be, yes, we want reconciliation, but that abusive husband needs to like, they need to repent and they need to, because we need, we need to, we need to protect uh, those of us that are most vulnerable. So, I mean, I'm all about, and that's another way how I survive because it's like, I have zero tolerance for it. If I have, man, if I had, whether it's a student who, you know, asked me a stupid question in a lecture or in a classroom, yes, you know, uh, or whether it's like uh a board member or a potential partner that's, you know, again, saying stupid stuff. I'm just like, I have zero, I have zero time for that because we're over here dealing with real issues in the hood. And that's really where my heart is. And so that's the other thing about the resistance piece that, that I want to be, I want to have a foot in both worlds. I want to be a part of like being in a place like Florida where we can bring, uh, you know, we can bring change and, and even like be, me like publishing with people like IBP. Man, I got another book I'm working on right now now with the University of California Press and, and I want to be in the and I'm trying to present at conferences for patristic and early Christianity like I want to be in the the white dominated guild of academia so that I can really you know like resist and also uh but also there's a place where I survive where it's like there's a certain there's stu- certain stupidities that I don't, I'm not even going to stress myself out by addressing you know what I'm saying? But then at the same time, the resistance also comes in me having a foot in another world because I believe that for true change to happen, we need to, we need to, uh, white folks need to be, to they need to genuinely and seriously create seats for us at the tables that they have created. And that means that the tables that they've created are going to have to change. We might have to change the height of that table. We need to change the texture of that table. We might need to change the accessibility of that table. And and they again, they need to be serious. And and but at the end of the day, I'm I'm cognizant of the fact that there's still white tables and that that these are still tables that have been made for them. And so I think now I do think we need to enter into their tables and and the ones that are genuine and serious. But I also think we need to create and support our own tables at the same time. And we really need to support and build up black owned business and black ministries. And that's really where my other work comes in with uh, not only with the Meacham School of Hymenode, but man, we're you know we're organizing a theological conference, man. And I, I want to holler at you about it, man, because it's actually going to be uh, in your backyard, man, in in, uh, okay. in Chicago this coming October. 
Okay. Where we're gonna have a uh, it's gonna be like an AAR SBL type of thing, but it's you know it's black owned and it's black only, and it's got and it's gonna be it's gonna be kind of like a Proctor thing, but it's like you know it's just reading papers, man. And it's gonna have we're gonna have a journal come out of it, and uh and I'll also man, I'm working on a book as well. That conference will be held at Urban Ministries International uh, in the south suburbs of Chicago, and I'm actually working on a book project right now with them, uh, and I'm you know I'm developing a theological perspective that I call uh, gospel Heimendorf. And uh, and I'm 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 writing a book with them, and and you know uh, I'm I'm just gonna be real, you know, like uh, that's that's you know in academia, you know, we have a racist white supremacist structure that 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 uh, that, that is communicated in the form of like ranking and, and creating a hierarchy around you yep. know yep. who you publish with and who you present with yep. and what counts tenure and what doesn't count and i and i again i reject that and call it out for what it is it's racist and it's and it's elitist and it's white supremacist so i'm working i have a book out with university press I'm working with a book project with university of california but i'm also working with a book project with urban ministries international the only uh black christian publisher in uh black, that's completely black owned in the country and 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 and, and that's something that i'm also doing at, and that in and of itself is a form of resistance and i present that uh with at least equal, if not more, pride in any other academic work that I do in the so-called accepted or dominant guilds of, you know, of academia. So that's that's really, man. I'm, that's a long answer. I'm sorry, but that's kind of like how I both yes and survive. Is that I try to I try to speak into the dominant culture and, and be present uh, and really work towards change. But I also think, man, I, I really want to be having a foot in our communities and our institutions as well, and supporting them as well. Dude, no, this is that's beautiful, man. And I'm just again for all those people listening, all those folks who are out there talking about, man, you know, where do I find the stuff? Where do I find the stuff? Right here, right there, it is right in front of you, man. Now, real quick, you cut out right when you said you're working on a new theological concept uh, that you got a book coming out with. What was it called again? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, man. I, I hope my internet uh, connection ain't bad. Uh, but. Yeah, so so the book is called Gospel Hymenote. So you know that's another thing I do, man. Like, you know, I really, I really, man, I'm about embracing uh, our African heritage. You know, because I mean, you know that when we come into theological studies, you get inundated with all these Greek and Latin and oh, French man. and German terms. Yes, and, and when you read, you read theological books in the academy they'll just throw them words into an english sentence and act and, and not even blink like that was just normal for them to just throw in the word or heimat or did into a sentence like everybody's supposed to know what that means you know what i'm saying and so like and that's cool but what i really do man is i embrace african terminology because we're as children of the diaspora we have a, a wide plethora of african heritage and especially looking at the ancient civilizations of africa that's really that's our greece and that's our rome is you know kush and ethiopia and, and all that so like that's where black people to think from and so hymenote is an ancient ethiopian word that means theology and you know thanos and Logos, that's just you know that's a greek term for like talking about god so you know i'm using the i'm using the ethiopian uh ancient ethiopian phrase for faith or belief or doctrine which is the word hymenote and uh and, and and gospel you know so a gospel hymenote or a gospel theology oh was that no 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 keep going keep going oh, okay. oh yeah so, so yeah man a, a gospel hymenote or a gospel theology in this book what we're doing man is we're we're trying to engage uh again as i was saying earlier about really what uh with the Meacham School and with this conference, this, this conference will be called the Society of Gospel Hymenote. It'll, and we're going to have a, a conference, man, at, at, at Urban Ministries International on October 23rd and 24th. And there'll be a, there'll be a, 
a journal that comes out of that that we'll publish called the the Hymeno Journal, and uh, you know it'll be man all black theologians from different disciplines, man Bible theology, practical theology, uh, you know church history, like you know whatever the case may be, homiletics, and and you know we're really reflecting on in the book. It's actually an edited volume, and uh, you know myself, uh, you know uh, some of the other you know just mentioning Dennis Edwards, uh, Kaniqua Day. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robertson, Vince Baco, like we're all, what we're doing is we're reflecting on what does it mean to do black theology, uh, a perspective that we're, you know, calling a, a gospelist perspective. Like what we're suggesting is that is there a is there another way of thinking that's again rooted in the traditional black church that we're calling a gospelist perspective that that is a little bit different than a um, you know a liberationist or womanist perspective. Most certainly def- different than a uh, reformed or evangelical or you know uh, any of these other white you know kind of theological constructs that really don't uh, have currency in the black community and really don't uh, you know even you know terms like evangelical or whatever uh, even before even before this fool we got in the White House and even before 2016 uh still really never had currency and didn't really do didn't really you know describe the faith of black people um and uh and really is embedded with uh you know americana and and, and you know kind of white supremacy and empire uh, but at the same time like kind of uh, you know looking at it a little bit differently than some of the maybe a liberationist or a womanist perspective where uh you know sometimes you know kind of the black perspective will uh sometimes take precedence over you know biblical orthodoxy and so what does it look like from a to to be again um, you know rooted in the bible as the word of god and as you know as infallible in, in kind of with the uh, you know universal gospel message, and then also uh, something that again grabs uh, unashamedly to black flourishing and Afrocentricity, and and that's really what the perspective is that we're calling gospel hymeno. We're going to have a gospel theology to be to be a gospelist. Uh, you know, the argument is that you know even you know kind of evangelical theology pre- uh, kind of really prides. Uh, truth over over you know human dignity or the other the afterlife uh, over this life <laughs> you know uh, and that's a very unbiblical perspective. and you know and and the argument is that the liberationist perspective kind of does the opposite where it like kind of prizes this one over the next or like looking at issues of justice over issues of truth uh, and, and what does it look like to really grab firmly onto both of those things uh, that's that's the that's the perspective that that we're advancing that that's uh, you know is called gospelist or, or more of a gospelist perspective. Wow. See, and I love that. I love that because that's just it. I mean, it, it, to look at somebody like Cone, right? I mean, who most people you would think know, but it was like, even when I read, finally read Cone in seminary, it was in a specific class on like blackness. And um, even then, it was still footnoted over, over an abundance, over like the, like you said, German, French. You know, all the folks that, you know, come out. And so we're reading about these cats. And here I'm I'm like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Cone's got some stuff here. And so the argument came out, you know, what was it, last year? I forget who it was. Some white dude talking about, you know, liberation theology is not biblical and whatnot, man. How, how, have, you, how have you engaged in some of those conversations, man? Because I'm sure, you know, teaching in a seminary, man, I know it just from teaching in a private Christian school on the undergraduate side, and I'm not even in a seminary, man. And I still get cats looking at me all cross-eyed. Um, how is it in a seminary where, you know, folks come in, they see you take a look at some of the material and they're like, well, but, you know, because that's the first thing people pull out, right? Oh, is it this? I don't know if this is biblical. You know, this is not rooted in the gospel. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, how do you, how you, how you nuance some of that? It's like, I'm assuming you're on the ten, your tenure track too, right? 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's ten to track, man, at Fuller, and and uh, and you know, thankfully, I feel like uh, you know, at Fuller, I don't deal with much of that. I've talked in some other contexts, man, that that are a little bit more right leaning, and they will say some stupid stuff like that. And and uh, and you know, Fuller, I haven't had too much of that. Um, you know, uh, I haven't had any of it yet because I actually, man, I just taught a class on Intro to Black Theology, and so man, we were getting all into this stuff, man. We was reading Cone, reading Jacqueline Grant, reading like Dolores Williams, and and uh, reading Ebony Marshall Terman and and Willie Jennings and and yeah. but also man, we was reading Tabiti Anyabule and we was reading Anthony Bradley and uh, we was reading like a whole plethora man of like uh, of black perspectives just to show and man even not just from the U.S. but I, like that's my thing is like if we're gonna talk about black we got to be really black so we reading like you know Delima Silva and we reading like uh, you know um, uh, you know uh, John Mbiti and 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 Musa Dube and like man we we going international with it because you know black perspective is not you know we reading Samuel Cruz like it ain't just about African Americans and so and and, and you know I, I intentionally in this class limited the perspective to black authors you know what I'm saying now but on all sides of the spectrum conservative liberal or whatever like and and, and you know saw people disagree I, I wanted people to engage with some of the the points for example that a Bradley or a Anya Bouillet would bring up and contend against you know like a Cone or a, or a Jacqueline Grant or whatever and that's again that's what this book this gospel hymenal book we're doing and I would say that we kind of probably land in the middle uh but but I intentionally um, told people in the class that we are looking only at black voices. I mean, uh, because this is like, you know, I, when you, you know, you ask like, what do you do when you got some of the people in the dominant culture saying it's not biblical and right. Now I'll be, again, with all respect and with all love, you know, these are my homies. I, I do have some, I do take some issues with liberation and womanist theology at some points. Um, but I don't do that. I mean, I'm doing that with you because, you know, you my man, Dan, and we on we on the Profane Faith Podcast. This is black space up in here. So I, this is an in-house thing. You know what I'm saying? So I can, yeah. uh, you know, when I'm in front of white uh, space, I do not I do not critique or throw, you know, liberation stuff under the bus because my thing is like, that's not, white folks have no say in that conversation. They have no say. They have no, you know, perspective. So again, I do have some issues with liberation theology on some points, but I also think it's very helpful. And I assign, you know, all the womanists and, and liberation theologians because they have, they were bringing up, especially starting in the '60s, they were bringing up uh, and critiquing white folks in some very needed ways and some still needed ways. But again, when white folks say that kind of stuff is not biblical, da da da, that goes back to that really good question that you asked that I like about how do you survive. And again, that's one of those stupid questions that I don't, I. <laughs> not even waste my time answering because I'm like, because again, like as much as I have a problem with, you know, as much as I might be a little concerned about some of the, the trend I see in a lot of liberation theology, again, where there's kind of a more of a pluralistic uh, and almost a humanistic trend and like kind of like, uh, you know, again, going to the, I feel like they were reacting in many valid and understandable ways against what I would say is, you know, really the more heretical and more problematic trend in dominant white theology, uh, you know, that is, again, is really a, a theology that, that is in service to keeping and maintaining privilege in its place. And I'm like, mm -hmm. when you, when someone from that place is trying to critique liberation theology, I'm like, you have no valid say in this conversation. I, I'm, I could care less what your problem is. You know, you don't think it's biblical. I'm like, bro, I could come into your church and I can come into your theological, uh, you know, imagination and see all kind of extremely demonic, problematic things. So I don't even have time for you. Uh, but, you know, I actually much more engage, prefer engage, actually engaging this kind of in-house thing. I liken it to Black Panther, man. Like, you know, Black Panther, uh, you know, is sort of like, you know, you, you thought Claw was the villain, right? But it's sort of like the movie's like, man, we don't got time for Claw. That's not, the real issue is Killmonger and Black Panther. Like, we're going to actually have an in-house debate. And that's actually the debate that I actually much more, you know, feel kind of called to engage. And then the whole dominant culture thing, it's like, I just, I, you know, again, and it's just kind of me 
part of it, like you said, that survival thing. But I just I don't have time for foolishness like that, because, again, like, you know, Cohen and others were like bringing up extremely valid points about how theology at the end of the day is all, you know, based in our human experience and how it's all coming from a particular locatedness. And, you know, I love how Carter and Jenny are showing how, you know, whiteness kind of develops as this, you know, um, especially in the Enlightenment, whiteness kind of develops as this invisible modifier that assumes the perspective of a universality and, and you know, kind of a non-particularized perspective. And, and I love how a lot of the womanist liberationist folks have said that again, that number one, you know, I think there's two really strong contributions that I discern from that perspective that I think have been very helpful. Number one is that again, theology is ultimately ultimately a human work, right? Revelation is a divine work, but theology is a human enterprise and therefore it's always particular and it's always local to a particular human experience. And that goes just as much for white men as for anybody. And, and the questions that we're that we ask theologically are based on that particular context. And then number two, that the gospel is not good news at all if it's not liberative to the poor. And that religion and religious life and and and, and you know uh, proclamations of faith, if they are not disruptive to systems of power and liberative to the marginalized and the oppressed, then it is no true gospel at all. And I think those are some great things. And again, if folks in the dominant culture have an issue with that, well, then you know they just I think they're going to need to just maybe be quiet and listen and learn and be discipled by somebody who looks different from them and so they can come out a lot of the imperialist kind of ideology that they have unfortunately been blinded to that's all around them yeah i love it man i love it well this is beautiful brother because i like i said man you you get me hype man and this in this era you know i i take any type of hype i can get because it feels i was just telling somebody this the other day i was like you know it feels like evil is is, is winning in this era and stuff and ultimately we know okay we know the future, so to speak. Um, it, but it feels like, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the grind of it, it's like, man, you look up all oh, Supreme court, this, you look over here, man, this thing over here. Now you got the coronavirus, people tripping out and, you know, making a run for the grocery store on toilet paper and, you know, napkins and, and stuff, man. So, you know, uh, it, you know, it just, it seems, you know, a little, little batty and stuff, man. So it brings us to this, you know, to this space where sometimes it just feels like, whoa, what, you know, what's, what's going on. So it's, it's, it's refreshing to hear your perspective and what, what you have going on and just, and just keeping, keeping the faith moving forward, um, in that and stuff, man. So I, this is, this is, this is great, man. If any, if anybody else is just great for me to listen to, you know, what the, what the hell's going on over on your end, man. Cause that's, that's, that's some good stuff. Um, well, listen, man, let's, let's hop into this book, man. You see, you got this book. You got this text. Um, why this text? Why now? Yeah, man. Like again, I mean, that's that's uh, you know, kind of stri- kind of a uh, you know, connected to what we were just talking about. Um, you know, I think that you know, uh, I think that um, this is like something that uh, I, I would again, again in this in this black space, I would kind of gently submit uh, for consideration is that a lot of times, man, when I'm reading uh, a lot of the dominant black theological voices. I end up seeing a lot more footnotes in their works from white scholars mm-hmm. <laughs> than actually black pieces. And I'm like, you know, and this is, but this is black theology, but yet we're building everything as a response to like, whether it's Bart or Kant or Hegel or, you know, Nietzsche or, uh, you know, or, or, you know, like uh, Colenso or, or, you know, whoever, whoever it is like, and, and I'm like, you know what, for me, man, I'm really interested in like, kind of like how I teach. I really want to, 
you know, really look at black voices. And, uh, and, and honestly, man, like the book really tries to do that as we, and now the first part, you know, I'm trying to look at, uh, really what my, my mentor and really spiritual father, uh, Dr. Soon Chan Ra, uh, you know, the, what he calls the white Western captivity of the church. And this idea that, that Christianity is fundamentally a white Western, um, enterprise. And the first part of the book looks at that from a historical standpoint and, and tries to present a, a trajectory for like how did that come to be, you know, because we know that's not the origin of the gospel uh, and the Christian faith, but how did how is how have we gotten from Pentecost to this nonsense that we have now and. But then the, the bulk of it, the really the, the core, the heart of the book is really trying to offer the 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 hidden and the the really the repressed history of the rich history of the gospel um, in you know Africa and in Asia and um, and so uh, that's really man the heart of it. I mean when I when I was in seminary, like I said, I I, I uh, you know took a class on early Christianity in Africa and I was just I was captivated man because I. And I and and I, I just you know thought that oh well I thought Christianity for black folks began in slavery and colonialism and I was just blown away with the fact that no actually there was a there's a rich history that goes back to the early church of of you know the uh, the bisrot as the Ethiopians call it uh, or the gospel you know there's a there's a there's a there's a long history of the bisrot in Africa and among black people that not only goes back to the very beginning of the bisrot itself or the gospel but also uh, it, that it was was all over ancient Africa and that it was freely embraced by ancient Africans. There was no colonialism, no slavery, no slave ships, you know, when Africans first believed in the name of Jesus. And yet that's just a part of, and I explore this in the book, that there's a reason why that history is, is not known because, you know, starting in the fifth century, the, the Christianity that was growing in these parts of the world was, was uh, inappropriately a, a labeled as heretical or as wrong by the dominant European church simply because it was different than the European church. And so, you know, uh, and a lot of these early Christians resisted that, 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 that kind of early attempt at, at Europeans trying to grab a hold of the Christian tradition and act like they have some kind of uh, monopoly on it. And yet these Christians, many of them, uh, unfortunately, have uh, be even become extinct like the ancient, the earliest churches in China or in Nubia. But many of these churches have, you know, persisted even to the present day. And, and so that's really what the book is trying to do is look at that. And that's why the book intentionally focuses on uh, before the history from the early church up until the, the 15th century when, you know, European global colonial mission enterprise really starts off. And that's why it's really looking at it from before that time period. Because again, you have many people that will say, you know, if somebody says Christianity is a white man's religion, uh, or as Dr. Ross says, it's a there's a Western captivity of the church. Uh, then, then a Christian went up, and it's in it's all over the world. But then somebody can come back and say, well, yeah, but that's only because of you know uh, Western missionaries who have kind of gone out and spread a Western version of Christianity all over the world. And I think that there's, that's a valid point. And so that's precisely why I'm looking at Christianities that started indigenously from Asians and from Africans and by Asians and by Africans that was not introduced through Europeans at all and developed from the earliest stages completely free of Western colonial influence and even in spite of Western colonial attempts at suppressing their particular theological output. Uh, so that's really, yeah, that's really what the heart of the book is, man. The, the book is meant to just really decolonize church history because, you know, a lot of, I mean, even some of the same, uh, and I touch on this actually in my other book in Gospel Hymenote, um, but, you know, some of these same communities that I'm really emphasizing in Africa and Asia in, in your maybe more dominant 
you know, uh, um, you know, church history textbooks in evangelical circles that they're written by evangelical presses and taught in evangelical classes. Uh, they'll usually present these histories as like heretical, and they will just follow this trajectory that's been around for 1,500 years that these Christians were not really Christians, that they were heretics, and and we, therefore we don't really need to know much about them. I mean, honestly, that's how I was first introduced and taught about it yeah. uh, in a very cursory, very quick kind of way. Yeah. And again, when I really delved into it in my PhD, I was like, no, nah, man, these people are these are brothers and sisters in Christ. These people believed in Jesus, and in fact, a lot of the so-called scholars who dismiss these people as heretical, they've never even read the theology that developed in these contexts because they weren't written in Greek or Latin, but they were written in Asian and African languages that a lot of these church historians don't even read. So they have condemned this entire two thirds of church history as heretical and therefore unimportant simply because it's not white church history, simply because it's not Western European church history. And they've done so without even actually engaging the sources, without even reading the church fathers and church mothers that wrote in Syriac and Ethiopic and Coptic and Arabic that wrote theology that was clearly orthodox, that was clearly rooted in the uh, in Trinitarian orthodox faith, but it was just articulated in a different way. And so that's really what the book is about, is just trying to bring up some of those uh some of those names. When I when I when I share about it, I'll often do a little uh, exercise where I'll ask the audience and ask them how many of you have ever heard the name. You know, even if you're not you know church historian. You, you may not be a church historian. You may not have even gone to seminary, or whatever, done a lot of formal study. But how many of you have just heard the name Martin Luther? And everybody yeah. raised their hand. How many of you have heard the name Thomas Aquinas? And everybody raised their hand. Right. How many of you have heard the name Augustine? And everybody raised their hand. Then I say, okay, how many of you have heard the name Zara Yaakov? Nobody raised their hand. How many of you have heard the name Narsai? Nobody raised their hand. How many of you have heard the name Shenouda of a tree? Nobody raised their hand. And I'm like, that exactly right there is Ooh. white supremacy. Because Ooh. if you had come to me having a bachelor's degree from a, a top Christian college, if you had asked me the same question right after I graduated college, I would have had the same responses. And, and that's even having a theology degree, that I would not have heard of these names, but I did hear these names, right? And again, even if you're not even a church historian, because of white dominance and white supremacy, their history, their figures, their theologians are household names, even among non-specialists, even among your just average everyday Christian. But the African and the Asian theologians that did just as much theological output and literary output and composition positions, their names are not known by anybody. So that's really the goal of the book is to, if nothing else, the goal of the book is really to, to rectify that by, by making the African and Asian names just as much household names as the Europeans. Oh man, this is powerful. This is, and this is, this is what I was telling you even prior to, to me hitting record on this man is that I've been, I, when I first heard you present and, and honestly you and Sun Chan presented, um, like I said, at CCDA, you know, many years ago. Um, and I've, you know, just in, in my own research and, and diggings and whatnot and beginning to figure out like, man, there is a rich history here of, 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 like you said, Asian and African history and Christianity. And this is what I, what is what I tell a lot of folks who just say, oh man, you know, cause I work with cats here, you know, in Chicago and I hear this a lot, particularly from black folk, like young black folk, young Gen Y, Gen Z, whatever you want to, the label you want to put on them, right? That they say, you know, exactly that. Christianity is a white man's religion and it has duped us as black people. And I'm just like, well, hold up. <laughs> like, yeah, the white side of it, absolutely. But when you start to dig down, man, and drill down, and you just said it, you just named, you just named a clear example of how colonization and really imperialism works in the classroom and in the education and just by naming the names, right? 
We know who some of these white folks are, but we don't know who some of these POC centered folks who, you know, who fought and labored, you know, with the gospel, struggled with it, went through it. Um, and we don't even know who they are and stuff, man. And so this is powerful stuff, man. And in those, again, those of you, y'all gotta, y'all gotta get the book. Even podcasts like this doesn't do it justice. We're just barely skimming the surface. These, there's four major chapters. I love this. Like the roots of Western Christian identity politics, which is filled with all kind of good shit, man. This is like the footnotes in this, man, are amazing, man. Golly. And I'm telling y'all, man, for those nerds, we have a lot of nerds listening. Y'all just need to check this chapter out because this, this gives the insight into how these things developed, why we can look up and there are people saying Trump is our man and Trump is, mm-hmm. is called by God and that, you know, the reason, mm-hmm. you know, this coronavirus mm-hmm. is spreading is because people came after Trump in the impeachment. This is so, this is, y'all need to read chapter one. And the next chapter is the first Christians of Africa. Now this in particular one, got me because again, there's a lot of stuff in here that I didn't even know about. And I went to seminary, bruh. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I went to seminary. <laughs> so it's like, wait a minute. And then you got number three, the early church in the Middle East. And then uh, number four, the beginning of missions uh, along the Silk Road. Um, can you just talk a little bit? I know here on page, let's see, 53, you talk a little bit about seeing Islam as Christian saw it. And I bring that up particularly uh, because, you know, there's always such a, a lightning bolt around Christians and Islam. And especially when you think about white conservative evangelicalism um, and how they view, you know, uh, our brothers and sisters, you know, in, you know, in the in the religion of Islam. So can you talk a little, just a, you know briefly about that again without giving away the cow, so to speak? Yeah, no, but I mean, like, that's a great, I mean, that's a great topic because like, like you said, it it follows up with the first section where we're really looking at kind of like exactly like you said, how the, how the theological, the Western theological groundwork that leads to a person like Trump really started in the fourth century. And part of that, especially when you get into the seventh and eighth century after the rise of Islam, that only, as I talk about in the book, that only exacerbates this, uh, this idea, this very idea itself of Western Christendom and indeed the Western world, because Western Christendom, the perverted and imperializing theology that, to your point, is no real Christianity. So when we got people saying Christianity is white man's religion, I'm like, well, if you're talking about Christendom, yes, that is a white man's religion. And that's not the religion I ascribe to. Because Frederick Douglass said it best that Mm -hmm. the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ is the widest possible difference between the two. And I can think of no reason except for the most deceitful one to call the religion of this land actual Christianity. And so I'm down with Frederick Douglass. I'm like, yeah, that, that Christianity, that Constantinian, that Charlemagne, Carolingian Christianity, that Trumpian Christianity, that enslaving uh, middle passage Christianity, that's yes, that is a white man's religion. That is an invention of white people. And, and guess what? That has absolutely nothing to do with Jesus of Nazareth. And, and that is a religion I don't ascribe to. And and so, uh, and our ancestors understood that. And that's why we took the gospel. We we took, we heard the gospel even through the perverted slave Bible they tried to introduce to us. And we still called on the name of Jesus, which led us to our liberation. And so, you know, that, that particular trajectory of Christianity has continued. And apart from the whole dominant kind of imperializing Christianity and Christendom that told itself we have to launch crusades because we have to we have to go do something about these Muslims. And even I talk about in the book, it was even the anti-Islamophobia in Western Christendom in kind of imperializing, uh, slave endorsing, co- colonizing Western Christendom. 
it what what was the original impetus for that in the papal bulls of the 15th century was again this continuing anti-islamic islamophobia kind of dynamic where it was like well we got to go into africa and india and asia and we got to enslave people in the americas because that will empower us to fight these muslims and so there was this anti-islamic dynamic that really all going all the way back to the to the ninth century uh really was uh kind of an impetus for creating western christendom in the first place but to the to your point in the fifth chapter um that, you know, it, for Christians who lived under Islamic rule in Africa and in North Africa and in the Middle East and even parts of Central Asia, they had a theological trajectory that did not that did not infuse them with this uh, sense of manifest destiny that they were destined by God, like Constantine, to rule the whole world. Yeah. So it was a an apologetic like, from people like Timothy of Baghdad, Christian Syriac speaking theologian from the ninth century in modern day Iraq. And there were theologians like Theodore Abukura, the first Christian to write in Arabic, whose name we know. There was Severus Ibn Abu Kaffa, who was a you know an Egyptian theologian, one of the first ones to write in Coptic and as, as well in Arabic, who engaged uh, Muslims in interfaith dialogue and were trying to win them over to the gospel. And I mean, even the first the first text that they talk about in the book that was ever written in Arabic uh, by a Christian was called On the Nature of the Triune God. And it's an attempt to explain the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, but in Arabic and using Islamic concepts. And notice, uh, in the, you know, like you said, I won't give away the cow, but notice, as I point out in the book, that in that text, they intentionally steer away from concepts like father and son, but instead they use concepts that are operative in Islam, like father, like God's word, his spirit, uh, God, God, his word, and his spirit, uh, or Allah, his word, and his spirit, concepts that are amenable. So what the early Christians in the Middle East and North Africa did, even after they came under subjugation under Islam, was that they winsomely tried to win over their Islamic counterparts to the gospel, and there was no kind of sense of, like, we're going to conquer or go to war against you. And this is the last thing I'll say about that that's very ironic, is that there were even cases of Christians in North Africa who were conquered by Muslims that actually preferred Muslim dominance over European Christian dominance. Oh. And so what I'm saying is that there are there were Christians in Egypt, for example, who when the Muslims took over Egypt in the mid-7th century, a lot of the Christians who were now living under Islamic rule actually preferred the Islamic rule over the European Roman rule that had been oppressing them for the last two centuries. And I think we can relate to that because sometimes, you know, sometimes as, as, as black folks in this country, uh, uh, you know, children, descendants of the diaspora who are living in this, you know, American empire, sometimes we might, you know, we, we, we're, we're Christians, right? We're members of the body of Christ. But sometimes, sometimes we, you know, especially when our, you know, we got 80 percent of people people who are so-called our brothers and sisters in Christ in the dominant culture, putting this fool in office. We, we, you know, sometimes we like, man, are they really our people? Like, are they really, right. are we really part of the same body? Right. Sometimes I feel like I have more in common with this black Muslim dude over here or this, this black Hebrew Israelite dude who's in my community with me and we're working together, you know, and that's kind of like kind of how the Egyptian Christians felt. They were like, I mean, I know we're brothers and sisters in Christ with the Romans, but they've been oppressing us for 200 years because we don't speak the same exact theological language they do. Now these Muslims came over and took over and we we kind of rocking with them a little bit better. They're allowing, they're more empowering to us than these these so-called brothers in Christ in Rome. And so that's just kind of showing again, though, how, like, as you said, like kind of seeing seeing Islam as Christians saw it in particular. And that's kind of a play on, on Robert Hoyland's famous book, Seeing Islam as Others Saw It, that, that again, when you, when you look at even how interreligious discourse happened when you're looking at it uh, from Egyptian and Syrian and other Christians who really developed on the margins that they defended the gospel and they uh, and that they they were trying to win people to the Lord but it was in a very different uh, way that you would see as what has developed in kind of the way Islam has been caricaturized by you know the Western world going all the way back to you know the the eighth and ninth century. Damn, bro, that is 
fire, man. This stuff right here is fire. Because this stuff right here, man, again, this is the stuff that we, I believe, as a society, as Christians, as faith believers, as as people who are or, who are pushing forward, this is what we're hungry for, man. It's like we've heard enough of Boris and we've heard enough of Moody and we've, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's like, okay, they had some good stuff to say, but man, it's like when you've been pounded with that over and over and over. And I feel like so much of our theological highway has fallen through and it's like, man, can we look through the ancestors, man, from, you know, from a different cultural and ethnic heritage and can we see how they survived? Can we read from them and what they had to go through, man? I mean, this, this is what I'm talking about here, man. And, um, Again, as you're as you're pointing out and stuff, man, and just as you're as you're engaging uh, with this, what? Um, and first of all, and, and when, when did this book? I'm trying to think. When, when did it come out, man? Because I'm trying to. But my next question was going to be like, what? Have you gotten any like, you know, what do some of the reviews look like? I know the copyright says 2020. Did it just? Did it just? Did it just release? Man, yeah, literally. It's, it's, it's really providential, man, that we're doing this because actually the Amazon shipping date uh, or release date is actually today. Nice. Nice. Yeah. And this yeah, so, so, man, yeah, literally literally today is the official release date for the book. That's what's up. That's what's up. And for those of you listening, uh, you know, I'm recording this here on March 10th, 2020. Um, and so that's, you know, you can, y'all can go out and get this and start reading it uh, right now. Um, again, I don't want to you know take up all the time and give away because there's so much, man. And brother, you got pictures and 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 and, and beautiful text in here, man. So those of y'all who just you know like oh so many words, this brother got texts. He's got uh uh pictures of the multitude of all the peoples, the first Christians in Africa. Can you talk just a little bit, man? As as you know, as we're winding down now, man. Just like these some of these first Christians in Africa, and 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 ultimately, what was. <sighs> You've talked about this before, um, and the first time I heard it was fascinating, man, but, you know, particularly when the church was centralized in, in Rome, but what happened, man? Why why, uh, why don't we learn more about this? Like, I get now and where we're at and the rise of white evangelicalism, man, but what 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 what, what were some of the things that came up, particularly as you talk about the, you know, the, the first Christians of Africa? Why are we just starting to engage with some of this stuff now t- in 2020? Yeah, man, like I, I would say, um, you know, uh, in, in the, uh, in, you know, in that first part of the book, man, when I, uh, the probably the section on the Council of Chalcedon, I would say that's probably one of the biggest reasons for it. Um, you know, uh, I mean, again, part of, I would say, white supremacist Christianity that really goes back to Constantine's day uh, is this belief, and we still have it today, this belief that uh, that the white Western world and its, and its empires represent God's will on earth. So what, you know, what kind of, and so there's a conflation of God's will uh, and the will specifically of white Western uh, state, you know, uh, interventions. And so, you know, we, we, we read that into church history and sometimes we would just give a carte blanche endorsement of specifically Western white uh, ecclesiastical history that was endorsed and supported by the Roman empire. And so we look at councils like Nicaea and, Con- and Ephesus and Constantinople and, and Chalcedon, and we almost elevate them to the level of, you know, of, uh, of biblical authority. And, and again, I mean, a lot of the truths that were articulated 
these councils, of course, I believe in, but, um, and a lot of the Christians in the early church believed in them too, but especially the ones that were outside of the Roman Empire, out of that purview of influence, they didn't, they were either just not affected by those councils, and they just, uh, or they just had their own way of articulating those same, you know, those, those same orthodox truths, and we're not beholden to the particularly Western, Greco-Roman, Platonic, you know, way of doing that with these terms like usia and hypothesis and physis, but the, the breaking point was really the Council of Chalcedon in 451, when the Roman church said, Jesus is one person, one, you know, hypothesis, but he's two natures, two physics. And that was just not that particular way of articulating the incarnation and the humanity and divinity of Christ was not amenable to a lot of the Christians in the Middle East and Africa, you know, in Egypt and Nubia and Ethiopia, uh, in Syria, Arabia, you know, um, you know, and, and then of course the church in Asia, the Persian church and the Central Asian and South Asian church, they had a whole different way of, of talking about the, the persons and natures of Christ. But, um, but you know, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the Middle Eastern and Africa, North African churches that were under technically under the Roman, uh, you know, imperial dominance, they resisted that particular theological construction because they, and they said, no, Jesus is one person and he has one nature. Now the Roman church condemned them as heretical because they, they, they took that in that Jesus' nature was only divine. And so again, like I said, you can read evangelical church history textbooks today, ones that were written in the 20th and 21st century, and you will see this same narrative being regurgitated that the early Christians in Egypt and Syria and all that, they didn't really believe in the full humanity of Jesus. And that is complete uh, that is complete rubbish. That is not true at all. The, that when you read the writings of scholars and, and theologians like Sever, uh, Severus of Antioch and Timothy Elorus uh, and Benjamin of Alexandria, you will see clearly that they fully accepted the full humanity and full divinity of Jesus Christ. But they just had a problem with saying that those that that his humanity and divinity uh, were distinct natures. They had a problem with the particular way that that was being articulated by the Council of Chalcedon, not the Bible. They, in fact, they believed that what the Roman Church was doing was a departure from biblical teaching and biblical orthodoxy. So you had this you had this big schism that happened in the in the year 451 that resulted in the marginalization of early African and Middle Eastern Christians and the Roman dominant church coming in and literally colonizing them with their theology. You had you had Roman European Christians Christians coming in and colonizing African and Asian Christians. It was Christian on Christian violence, where literally their leaders were kidnapped, were murdered, were replaced with uh, Roman uh, leaders that were sympathetic to the Roman view. And this went on for 200 years. And then that, going back to the other question, when Islam came around, the Romans just, you know, they, the Romans and the African and Middle Eastern Christians, were ha they had had this bitter conflict for 200 years. And then the, Ro the Romans got their butts whipped by the Muslims. And those same parts of the Christian world that were, you know, had a divergent theology from the dominant one now became under Islamic rule. And like I said, some some of those Christians even were glad to get get rid of the Roman uh, Christian rule. But that really that schism that happened has so many reverberative effects that still affect uh, our, our our historical imagination even to this day. So the reason why when me and you went to seminary and we didn't hear about this stuff is because the the white folks that teach and run our seminaries decided that. What the Council of Chalcedon decided in 451 must have been true. It must have been led by the Lord, even though, again, Egypt and Syria and Persia had their own church councils. Well, we don't need to know about those. We don't need to worry about what happened because God's side was on the Roman church councils, right? So we mm. still have a make Rome great again. We have a make the West great again mentality, and that's what that's what affects how our professors, department chairs, deans, and administrators decide what we read and what we don't read in our classes. And so that's really kind of going, that's really the reason why so many of these, these theologians in Africa and, and Asia have been 
preemptively already decided that they were heretics again, even when, Mo, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, we went to seminary, but man, you know, even our colleagues, even many of our colleagues who are scholars, you know, who are professors of church history, even many of them haven't heard of these people because again, they've, they've decided that they're not really orthodox. We don't need to read those. And, you know, most, most historians focus on your European history and European languages. And again, most of this theology was not even written in Greek or Latin. It was written in totally different languages like Coptic and Syriac. So we got to go back and we got to learn those African and Asian languages and we got to get those texts. And we, when we read them for themselves, we see that these were clearly Christians who believed fully in the full humanity and full divinity of Jesus Christ. They just articulated that with different wording. They just didn't want to say that those things were two natures. They said that his humanity and divinity were in one united nature. And that's why they call themselves Miaphysi, you know, or Miaphysis, one nature, right? And then that, that one nature is fully divine and fully human but that was really the you know kind of the dividing point right there uh and and in as far as we continue to ignore or not look at these histories we are actually doing what a eurocentric white supremacist theological trajectory wants us to do which is just ignore them and only look at the western sources and so that's the book is really just kind of an attempt at resisting that and saying no we're going to look at these theologians that came from the margins and we're resisting that dominant voice and when we do that we actually see that these were brothers and sisters in christ who articulated the gospel and the incarnation in their own, own unique cultural context Ooh, I love this, man. This stuff is so rich, man. I could I could listen to this stuff all day, man. This history right here is is rich, uh, and so much of it that you know that we're missing. Um, I love, and I'll end on this, man. I love the last, literally the last paragraph and the last chapter. You're concluding. This is page two twenty eight uh, to about uh, two thirty, um, and you're talking about missions as cultural sanctification. Can you give a little snippet of that? Because I love the breakdown here. Um, of the Great Commission, um, especially in, you know, in regards to, you know, how white supremacy, you know, gets 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 played out and, and nuanced and not just even within just white context. But, you know, like I talk about white supremacy becomes a culture uh, because part of the DNA and the theological DNA and, and whatnot. And so um, I love kind of how you summarize that. So if you want to just give a, a quick snippet of that, just kind of how you again broke down. Matthew 28, the you know, the gospel, the commissioning and how it's been kind of used in, in missions. Yeah, yeah, man. Like that's you know, I, I love I love Jesus's words. You know where uh, I mean, he says, uh, you know, we always put emphasis on the going part, right? Uh, you know, yep. in a lot of evangelical circles, but the actual imp imperative in the Greek is make disciples, right? Or is to disciple. And then what are we discipling? We're discipling the ethne, right? Well, you know, that's why even even in the title of the book, you know, that's why uh, you know I, I actually didn't want to do a. Uh, they they wanted me to call it multitude of all nations, but I. I don't like the uh, the overuse of the word nations in evangelical parlance and even in in translations and worship songs because again the nation state is a modern phenomenon. The the, the ancient world did not think of when they said ethne. Uh, it's really I, I think that it's it's not a good translation to call that nations because we think nation states and kind of political boundaries and and kind of modern nation state and border states, but we know that. Modern nations encompass a multitude of ethnicities and people groups and tribes and tongues. And that's really how the I mean, uh, that's really what in, in the Greek and early, you know, early late antique world. That's what they were talking about when they said ethne. They weren't talking about imperial boundaries like the Roman Empire or the Persian Empire, which themselves encompass multitudes of different people groups in ethne and laoi and, and, and genoi. But it's really talking about, again, like cultural and ethnic affiliation. People. So I think that's why I, I like the word people, multitude of all peoples, because peoples in English has that more sense of like 
Well, a people group may be a nation, but it also may be a tribe that's within a nation or a particular ethnic group that's within a national boundary or that even transcends national boundaries, that you have ethnic groups that are in different modern nation states, depending on how they've been carved up. And so so when we and then when we when we draw upon like, you know, uh, anthropological resources and we look at, well, what does it mean when we say ethnicity and what does it mean when we say culture? We know those words and those concepts are fully loaded and fully charged, uh, you know, things that are not just boundaries and not just kind of demarcations of people groups but they but it actually refers to a systems of values and systems of of you know we know culture is a, is a system of value and ethnic ethnicity has more to do than just just with like food, clothing, and traditions and rites of passage, but it has to do with value systems that are communicated and learned in a societal community uh, and are transmitted from generation to generation through learning. And so, when, when, when as as you know, uh, the world of scripture and Semitic culture usually likes to usually uses words and concepts that have a multitude of meanings, and all many of which uh, are usually intended in the meaning. I I prefer to look at the Great Commission from the perspective of a, a Semitic way of of thinking of the word ethne and the word cultures and people groups in the fullest sense of what that word can possibly mean. And that that is what Jesus is calling us to disciple, to make disciples of. He is calling us to make disciples of the fullness of what culture really means. Because we know there's a, there's, I mean, whole disciplines and millions of pages of scholarship that is dedicated to the definition of what culture even is in the first place. And what, and, and, and I'm, and I leave it to the anthropologists and sociologists to define what ethnicity is and what culture is both in the ancient world, as well as in the modern, because we know that in, uh, we know because of Anthony Smith's work that ethnicity and culture are not just modern concepts, but they were clearly operative in the ancient world. And so they, 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 but what I'm Submitting is that ethnicity and culture is and means and all the variety and complexity and nuance and totality of what uh, what it means to belong to a culture and, and what culture even is and ethnicity is. Jesus is calling us to disciple all of it, all the totality of what our culture and ethnic identities are. Jesus is calling us to make disciples of it, to bring it into uh, into the rule and reign in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so who we are as black people, as African-Americans and who anyone is as whatever people group they are, Jesus is calling his people implanted in every nation, tribe and tongue that because we are a multitude of all peoples that as God's people find themselves implanted in cultural, ethno-specific, historical reality that God is calling us to be the living witness of his kingdom within that particular culture and to bring that very culture itself into the kingdom of God. The cultural values of African Americans, for example, we have cultural values and traditions that we've been taught from our grandmothers and from our mothers and from uh, and from our historical memory and tradition. And, and some of those things are broken and are in need of transformation, but so many of those things are beautiful and reflect God's image. And God is calling us to strategically bring those things into worship of him as the triune God and as a, as a proclamation of his kingdom and us being made in his image. And so that's, that's really what I mean is that missions, rather than always thinking of it as like, uh, I think the way reductionistically it's been kind of uh, broken down uh, by many of our counterparts in the dominant culture, that missions is going from point A to point B. And it's just that act of going in and of itself, which oftentimes is laced with a lot of messianic or hero complexes and that really have to do more with the goer rather than the actual end goal of the gospel being implanted and reflected in every tribe, nation, and tongue. Rather, I'm trying to amplify that vision and that that definition by saying that that missions, uh, this this process and this project that we call missions uh, that, that really Jesus speaks to is is really a larger, much more nuanced, much more diverse process, again, of making disciples of our ethne and the ethne in which we belong and all the totality of what that means. Oh, man.
Y'all, I'm telling you, the book is a multitude of all peoples engaging ancient Christianity's global identity out by Dr. Vince L. Bantu. Brother, this has been fire. Fire. I'm telling you, man. Um, this is amazing. And I've definitely received a word today. And, um, you know, this is this is great. I myself am going to be, you know, going back and listening to this. Um, where can folks find you, brother, if they want to get you out and, you know, um, you know, pay you that hundred thousand dollar honorarium to, to to come out and speak for fifteen minutes. Um, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> get you on, get you on television, all that stuff, man. Maybe, maybe even donate a couple million to the to the school, man. Where where can folks get a hold of you at? Yeah, man. Like, uh, man, definitely. Uh, you know, I'm on Facebook. You know, Vince Bantu. Uh, you know, you can hit me up there. Um, you know, also, you know, I'm at I'm at Fuller. Uh, you know, in Houston, Texas, you know, teaching classes and, and, and working with the Pinnell Center in Houston and uh, Vince Bonsu at fuller.edu. Uh, also, uh, you know, you can definitely hit up our Meacham website. Uh, that's uh, M-E-A-C-H-U-M uh, dot O-R-G. Uh, so, yeah, www.meacham.org. You can hit up our website, see some of our events going on. Uh, we do have a, the, uh, you know, the Gospel Hymenal Conference coming up in Chicago, October 23rd and 24th. And we would love for anybody to come, but especially for uh, black. I'm, I, I'm trying to hit you up, my brother, Dan. We're trying to get yes, sir. black scholars and black graduate students to come oh. out. and let's, let's present papers and let's let's do theological reflection. That's for us and by us, you know, and, uh, and, and definitely all are welcome, though, to attend that. In Chicago uh, on 23rd and 24th. Also, I, uh, I could, and this is on the Meacham website. The call for papers is is there as well, and registration page. And then also, I just would quickly a plug. Uh, we actually uh, uh, are uh, sponsoring a trip to Ethiopia in January of 2021, and uh, and so definitely come out. Uh, it's a nine day trip. Uh, that's only about thirty five hundred dollars. Um, for for nine days exploring all of the ancient Christian sites in Ethiopia, some of the most one of the one uh, really the first sub-Saharan black or first African nation to be a Christian nation, uh, and the only African, the only predominantly black country in the world that's never been colonized. And uh, and so we're going to go see some of the ancient churches in there, and that's going to be uh, during the 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 biggest holiday of the Ethiopian culture, the the Feast of the Epiphany or Timket as it's called. Uh, there'll be celebrations going on, and we're going to see ancient churches that are a thousand and fifteen hundred years old. Uh, uh, that were built by Africans who believed in Jesus. And, uh, and, and so we're going to see that. So definitely hit that up. Uh, that's on the website as well. Um, and you can also hit me up at, uh, at, through that as well. Uh, you know, Vince.Bantu at Meacham.org. Um, so yeah, we'd love to love to hit anybody up on, on any of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And again, as always, for those of you listening, uh, whitehodgepodcast.com. You listen to this in your car. If you listen to this in the radio, you listen to this uh, wherever you listen to, wherever you find your podcast, that you can go to White Hodge Podcast and get those links uh, in in the show notes. Um, get this book. Y'all need to read it. You need to check it out. You need to, you know, study it for yourself. Take this in. And man, this trip, I may just have to start saving up for that because I've been wanting to get out there and to have an amazing tour guy like yourself. Uh, that would be great. And absolutely, man. Hit me up about this thing in Chicago. I need, I need to learn more about that myself. Shoot. Um, well, Doc, thank you so much for taking the time out today um, and sharing with us just uh, uh, a bountiful, <laughs> a bountiful word today, man. So thank you. Oh, man. No, this is a pleasure. Thank you, my brother.